Um, I do also just want to begin, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the space that uh, we're on and acknowledging the, uh, the traditional owners uh, of this space, the Wurundjeri people uh, of the Kulin Nation. And I uh, just give, give my respects to uh, their people, their leaders, their elders, past and present. I've been arrested twice in my life, which is probably not the words you want to hear from your visiting preacher. <laughs> The first time was uh, a, a, a early December evening in 2013, and I I had uh, taken one of one of our neighbours. He'd only recently um, come to our neighbourhood, uh, an Indian background, so he was right into cricket. So I took him to uh, cricket practice at the local cricket club to try to connect him in there, and I dropped him home. And as I was driving home uh, from uh, his place. I was preparing to turn into a side street that would lead up to the, the main road and, and as, I, as I was uh, getting ready to turn I noticed a car coming up the other way and it was a one-way street so I thought that's a bit, a bit odd, I thought it was the other end, it doesn't matter, I'll, I'll go on to the next uh, turn. And so I kept driving and uh, I soon noticed that there are two police cars behind me with their lights flashing and so I thought they look like they're in a hurry, I'll pull over and let them go past. And so I pulled over, and so did they. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I was a bit puzzled, I got out of the car, and when I got out of the car, eight police officers got out of the two cars and, uh, and came towards me. One of them had a, uh, like a microphone that they pointed towards me, and, and, uh, and he you're ripping the rights. You're under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say or do may be used against you at a court of law, all that uh, stuff. And I must say, I was a bit stunned at this point. And I probably looked at, they said, do you know why we're arresting you? And I said, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, he explained to me, you know, you, you've been uh, you know, evading police. You came the wrong, you drove the wrong way right down the road. And, and so on. And it slowly dawned on me that they were after this other car that I'd seen in the, the one-way street a moment earlier. And so I began to explain to them, you know, where I'd been and what had happened. And they, they took my license and said, you wait in the car while we check you out. And, and so they did. And a few moments later, the police officer dashed up to my car chucked the wallet license in the window and said, you're all right, you can go now. And they took off and in a moment they were gone. <laughs> Presumably they were after the real bad guy. Now, uh, that story really has nothing to do with uh, what I'm talking about today, but it's a, good, a fun story to tell. <laughs> the second time I was arrested, that was a little bit different, actually. I still remember uh, walking up the, the steps uh, into the office building of the then opposition leader, Bill Shorten. It was, it was May 2014, uh, 2014, sorry. And with this sense of fear and, and trepidation uh, as I walked up the stairs, I was part of a group that day of, of ministers, uh, Baptist ministers, Pentecostal, uh, uniting, uh, a Catholic nun uh, was with us. And, and we were there because we're deeply concerned that uh, there were over 1,200 at that time uh, children 
being held in Australia's detention centres, uh, both uh, offshore in uh, Nauru and here in Australia, including just down the road from my uh, place in Broadmeadows. And at the same time uh, that day, there was, a, there was a, another group who were doing a similar thing in uh, the then Prime Minister's office uh, in Manly, uh, Tony Abbott. And, and so we, we went uh, into their office and, and uh, simply uh, to, to uh, sit down and pray. Pray for the, the children who were locked up in detention, pray for the, the uh, you know, politicians who are uh, on, on both sides of the, you know, both uh, major political parties at that time, and, um, and, and pray and commit to doing so until that situation uh, changed. Now, of course, uh, nothing changed that day, and, uh, and uh, around 7.30 that night, police came into the office and arrested us and, and took us outside. I have to tell you that to this day, it's the longest day's work I've ever done in my life in an office. So, <laughs> um, now, now I know that uh, you know, different people have, have different views on, on actions uh, like that. But we were there because we saw that something was deeply wrong and it needed to be challenged. We were there because um, you know, we, we felt that this was an emergency and it needed to be brought into you know, the public consciousness that uh, we needed to see that this situation, <coughs> over 1,200 children locked up, was an emergency. You see, we saw that if, if locking children up like this was the status quo, then the status quo uh, had something deeply wrong with it and needed to be challenged. Now, I know you've been talking about the status quo and uh, in, in a bunch of different ways. Um, the way I see it, the status quo is the, the state of normality, you know, the way things are. Um, the state of normality that is upheld by uh, those in power. And as Christians, aren't we called to look critically at the status quo through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of, of Jesus' life and ministry, death and resurrection, and to challenge the status quo when necessary. Now, just like walking up the steps of Bill Shorten's office, I come to this topic with a little bit of fear and trepidation because it's, it's not a light topic, is it? Um, and I reflect on, uh, so today I'll be talking on ministry that challenges the status quo. And uh, I reflect on... Uh, the, the, uh, the word ministry or minister um, in the New Testament, uh, diaconia, uh, is, you know, literally means servant or service. If you were a servant in the New Testament times who challenged the status quo, then things would not go well for you, actually. <laughs> uh, you, would be, you might be beaten at best or at worst killed. Ministry that challenges the status quo actually has consequences. So that's, that's the bad news. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but let's come to this topic with a sense of, oh, of the gravity 
uh, that it carries. And I want to do that by uh, just uh, looking at a few stories that we find of Jesus' ministry. And you know, we'll, we'll uh, attempt to pick a few things out, um, uh, you know, learning about what ministry that challenges the status quo looks like. And I'll, I'll share a few um, examples of how that translates into our context. Ours is not the only context, and ours is certainly not, uh, you know, we don't certainly do that perfectly. But it is our context, and it's uh, the stories that we come from. So I hope uh, that's helpful to you this morning. So one Sabbath day, uh, Jesus is in Capernaum, a, a, a seaside town or village on Lake Galilee, and he goes to the synagogue. And there at the synagogue, he's confronted by a man uh, who comes uh, to him screaming, Jesus of Nazareth, what do you want with us? Have you come here to destroy us? He's obviously uh, out of control here. You, I'm sure you know the story in Mark chapter 1. We might even call this you know, Jesus' first active ministry uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus uh, rebukes the, the, the man. He has an unclean spirit, we're told. He rebukes the, the spirit, silences the man, and orders, commands the, the unclean spirit to come out of him, and it goes. And... We, and, uh, and when that happens, the people look at Jesus and, and are amazed, we're told. Now, we could look at this story and, and just see it as a, uh, you know, as a, a, a fantastic story of, of Jesus healing someone and restoring someone, and that's what it is. But we also have to look at the way Mark tells it, uh, because there may be some things here that Mark really wants us to see, that he wants us to emphasise, and, and the clue is given both at the, at the start of the story and at the end, so Mark's highlighting something to us. You see, Jesus comes into the synagogue and teaches them as one having authority. He teaches with authority, we're told. At the end, they're amazed. And, and funnily enough, they're not amazed at, at what happened. They're amazed because they look at Jesus and say, who is this? Um, he's teaching with authority. Jesus teaches with authority in this story. Well, what, what's that about, we might ask? Well, we can see in, in Mark's Gospel, only a few verses earlier, uh, what it is that Jesus is teaching as he comes, uh, as he begins to, to preach and teach he teaches this message of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near, he says. And yeah, he preaches this message of the kingdom. Sorry, just uh, gathering my thoughts. Um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an authority that Jesus has that is specifically contrasted with that of the scribes. The scribes are, are those... Uh, you know, the, the teachers and the, the interpreters of the law in the synagogue who, um, who, who are sort of are, are there to, to keep the synagogue, to keep the order and to represent 
uh, you know, the synagogue is a uh, like a satellite, if you like, of the, the temple in Jerusalem. It re uh, represents the temple system. For the scribes, their authority comes from the synagogue given by the temple. It represents the, the, the religious system, if you like. Jesus comes with a message of the kingdom, the kingship of God. And it's he who has authority. You see, when I look at this story, we might say that Jesus challenged the status quo that day because his authority was not, uh, not, from, not about the synagogue, but about the kingdom. Now, it's not too far to jump or to, to look at that story from our time and say that ministry that challenges the status quo then is about kingdom not church. It's about kingdom, not church. Now, you know, that might make us a bit uncomfortable as we, as we uh, uh, you know, uh, um, as we sit here in a church. But we, we know, we remember that, that churches don't exist for themselves, do they? Churches don't exist uh, to... to uh, to build up their own selves. Churches exist for what's out there, to be salt and light. Churches exist so that God's kingdom may be enacted, may be lived out, out there, beyond the walls. Ministry that challenges the status quo is about kingdom, not church. Now, um, for us... This is what it looks like. It's messy. Um, in our context in Broad Meadows, um, it's actually not about. We don't have a house church. We don't have a a, uh, a way of of doing church. Perhaps we will someday. Um, that'd be great. I don't know. But for us, it's about uh, three times a week. We gather in the mornings, um, usually just Matt and myself and, and my wife, Colleen, and we meet and we pray and we read uh, the gospel stories, read scripture, and we share communion. And it's, it's this, uh, act, this act of finding ourselves in the story that drives us out, that empowers us, that sort of is the fuel for what happens in the rest of the day, which is all about participating in, in what God is doing in the local neighbourhood. And that can look like a, a bunch of things. For, for Matt, it looks, uh, you know, three days a week, like going into the local high school and, and sitting with, with kids who, who need a bit of help um, in a whole bunch of different ways. It looks like eating Bangladeshi food uh, that is uh, that uh, our mate down the road has, has, has made. It looks like empowering um, his housemate to go in and cook food in the in the high school. Uh, for for uh, myself, it looks like um, going into the local primary school, which which is just across uh, the road from our house. Um, Getting, gathering kids of, 
uh, uh, you know, primary school kids to play music, to learn guitar and, and things like that, um, to, you know, for, for Colleen, my wife, it looks like gathering mums and, and parents to learn English and to, and to talk about uh, different issues uh, in their lives. This is uh, creating kingdom places of welcome, where, where people are welcomed and included in our community. It might look like um, in, the, in the school we have a community garden that uh, a bunch of us get into on a Thursday and uh, you know, work the ground and, you know, as, it, as, it, uh, as it were. And at the end of the day, go home with a big bunch of, of uh, fresh homegrown veggies. It's a kingdom, uh, places of, of generosity in the community, right? It might look like, uh, as, we'll talk, as I'll talk a bit more later on, um, going down the road to the detention centre where, um, uh, you know, some people have been held for, for you know, coming up to, to eight and nine years. Being God's justice in, and, and uh, working for God's justice uh, in the local community. Living out, you know, as best we can, God's kingdom in the neighbourhood. These are some of the things it looks like. You'll have some of those uh, examples uh, in your own neighbourhoods, in your own lives, and some of those opportunities that uh, may be uh, ready to be taken. It's about participating in God's kingdom, not, uh, not about building a church. Here's another story. Um... Just a few verses later in Mark chapter 1, we find that Jesus is travelling through the villages of Galilee, proclaiming the message we're told and casting out demons. And he's approached by a man. This man, uh, he, you can see, if we can imagine, has, has marks on his, on his face and, and his skin is... Is uh, obviously uh, is reddened and, and hardened. Uh, he has leprosy, and he comes up to Jesus and he falls down at Jesus' feet and says, "Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean." Uh, you know the story. Jesus reaches out and touches the man and says, "Yes, I am willing. Be clean." The man is is healed. Jesus uh, directs him to go and show himself to the priests at the temple. Um, and, and, and by the way, don't tell anyone. <laughs> go straight there. Go, don't pass go, all of that. And, of course, the man uh, doesn't uh, do that. He tells everyone what has happened to him because he's, he's so overjoyed. And as a result, we're told, uh, Jesus can no longer go into the um, the towns and villages, but has to stay outside of them in the wilderness, in the lonely places. See, Jesus has touched a leper, and that, in the eyes of, of, of the people, has made him unclean. Jesus, in a sense, has taken on this man's marginalisation. And as a result, he himself is marginalised, can no longer go into the towns, the villages, but stays out in the wilderness. But then something happens. You see, people start to come to Jesus. 
And there's this, this group, this community, if you like, that forms around Jesus on the margins. You see, ministry that challenges the status quo brings us to the margins. It finds us on the margins. I wonder where the marginal places are in, in your neighbourhood. I know that, that, that uh, I'm sure that uh, this is something that you've, you've reflected on already. You don't need me to tell you. But I can tell you that the most marginal place in our neighbourhood is, uh, we've talked about it uh, before, is, is the detention centre, uh, MITRE, Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation, which unfortunately is not transitory for many uh, people who live there. But I remember one of my first visits um, in January or early February 2012, and I went uh, went to visit with a a friend of mine, Ashley, and a a new group of men had uh, been brought to the centre. They were um, refugees from Sri Lanka, and we sat with them that day. We we uh, spent some time and and um, and got to know them, heard a little, you know, a little bit about their story, and then we left. And I remember thinking, as we as we left and, and drove home, <laughs> these guys, you know, we'd heard that they were um, there because. Of, of their links with the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka and, and so they were being held in detention and not allowed. At, at that point, they'd been um, in detention for three years at, at various centres around Australia before they were brought to Melbourne. And I remember thinking, if only they'd made different choices, if only they hadn't got involved with this, uh, this rebel group who was, was fighting a civil war um, a couple of years earlier against the the Sri Lankan uh, government, then they wouldn't have ended up in this mess. And over the next uh, three or four, or uh, in fact, um, there's a couple who are still uh, in detention of that group. But over the next three or four years, I visited with them and sat with them, um, just talking about um, life in Australia, talking about life in Sri Lanka, playing games, um, trying to learn language and, and being laughed at at my, my poor attempts <laughs> to do that, <laughs> and praying. And over those years, I came to see their situation uh, in a much deeper way. I came to see that um, they, they didn't have a choice about, about uh, many of the, the forces that were, enacti- that were acting upon them. They didn't have a choice about uh, being part of a minority group that had been oppressed for, for decades in Sri Lanka. Um, they didn't have a choice about, um, in, in the, the areas, uh, the Tamil areas where they were from in, in Sri Lanka, everyone had some kind of 
of link through a relative or or uh, or a neighbourhood connection, because Tamil Tigers were just um, were part of the the. Uh, the community organising uh, groups in all of those places. They didn't have choices about that. Uh, in some cases, people had been forced to do things by um, that they didn't want to do. And I came to see their situation very, very differently. I came to see their situation uh, through different lenses. You see, when we when we sit with people on the margins, whether it's refugees in detention, um, theirs was a, a particular kind of uh, situation. Um, there's, there's many others in all sorts of different situations from all sorts of places. But when we sit with people on the margins, perhaps uh, people who are um, marginalised because they are differently able to us, perhaps it's people who are marginalised because of their sexuality. Perhaps it's people who are marginalised um, for all sorts of reasons. We start to see things differently. We develop different lenses through which to see them and through which to see the world around us. This is not something we do, but it's something that we it just, just happens, right? Something else happens. We become people. When we, when we sit with people on the margins, we become people who can't help uh, but challenge the status quo. It changes us and makes us want to speak out on their behalf. Because loving our neighbours in, in, in those sort of situations doesn't just mean having cups of tea, but challenging the reasons uh, why they are marginalised for whatever reason. So ministry that challenges the status quo is about kingdom, not church. And ministry that challenges the status quo brings us to the margins. Here's another story. Immediately after the last one in Mark's Gospel, beginning of chapter 2, we find Jesus back in Capernaum um, at his home, we're told. And there's a, there's a crowd that learns that Jesus is, is back, he's here, and they gather around the home and they, they come to Jesus for, uh, and Jesus you know, begins to minister among them. He's, he's healing people and, um, you know, doing stuff, I don't know. <laughs> And, and uh, I guess gradually Jesus begins to realise that there's bits of mud, bits of stuff falling on his head from the roof. <coughs> uh, and he might look up and, and there's, there's something happening up there in the roof. There's, there's, there's people up there and they're, they're digging a hole in the roof and they lower their friend, you know the story, right? They lower their friend... Uh, down into the, you know, through the roof, into the room where Jesus is because they can't get in from the outside. You see, their friend is paralysed. Um, he can't uh, move for himself and so his friends bring him to Jesus through the roof. And, and Jesus looks at the man 
and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, this uh, raises a fair bit of angst for some of the people in the room, or, or perhaps outside. They're the scribes. And the, the scribes get so uh, incensed by what Jesus has said because, well, let's think about it. You see, who defines what sins are in their world? It's the scribes. They're the interpreters of the law. They're the ones who read. I mean, scribes are the only people who can read in, uh, in, in this kind of uh, village community. They're the ones who read the law and interpret it to the people and tell them who is a sinner and who is not a sinner. Now, these scribes, they know Deuteronomy. They know, they know their Old Testament well. They know the, that uh, when, when people follow God, according to Deuteronomy chapter 28, when people follow you know, God in obedience, then they're blessed. And we, when people uh, disobey God, then they're cursed. And, and this sort of uh, theology which we find in the Old Testament, and which, by the way, is, is also challenged in the Old Testament in books like Job. This sort of theology becomes on the street to mean that if you're someone who suffers some kind of misfortune, perhaps you're, you've become ill, you've got some kind of sickness, perhaps you... Uh, um, are crippled like this man. Perhaps you're, you're uh, a poor, you've had a bad uh, harvest on your, your land. If, that's, if, that's, if, if you're in a situation of misfortune, then that's because God is obviously punishing you because you've been a bad person, you're a sinner, right? This is the, the theology on the street. And so this paralysed man, Obviously, he's paralysed because perhaps he's done something, or perhaps his parents, who knows? But, but somewhere, someone has done something wrong and he's paying the price. He's punished by God. And so when Jesus says to him, son, your sins have forgiven, what right does Jesus have to say that to this man who is being punished by God. Now, of course, that's not the way Jesus saw it. That's not the way we would see it. But in the eyes of the scribes, this man was not legitimate. And when Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven, he gave him back his legitimacy. This man was, was, was someone who was, was uh, said to be bad, but Jesus affirmed him. And Jesus affirmed the fact that he carried all of the, the God-given dignity and worth. Is anyone else in that room? You see, ministry that challenges the status quo legitimizes the delegitimized. Ministry that challenges the status quo legitimizes the delegitimized. Over the last 18 months, um, 
I've uh, been, been uh, visiting a particular family in um, Mitre, in the detention centre. Uh, Pregranatus and their two girls, Gobika and Theranika. Pregranatus um, uh, had, had come to Australia um, as uh, people seeking protection. They'd actually come separately and, and met here in Australia and married and had moved to the central Queensland town of Illawilla, where uh, Nardis worked in the meatworks uh, there, a town that's, that's uh, crying out for, for good workers to come and, and, and work in its local industries. They had two children, and uh, in March last year, their, their home was, was uh, in the early hours of, of the morning, was raided by Border Force officials and they were taken into custody. You see, they, uh, they were even put on a plane to be, to be uh, sent back to their, um, the, the country that uh, they were born in, Sri Lanka. And uh, thanks to legal proceedings, that, that uh, um, uh, deportation was, was halted. And, and, and ever since that, that uh, then they've been uh, in Mitre in Melbourne, a detention centre. And over the 18 months that I've been visiting uh, them, their, their children, Gopika and Dranika, uh, are now uh, two and four. Uh, they've both had two birthdays each uh, in detention. Um, and, and there's been uh, a, a, uh, a number of health issues that have, have come up for them due to, to uh, nutrition um, deficiencies um, and inadequate access to, to uh, outside play, um, you know, vitamin D deficiencies and, and so on. Uh, Thranika has just had, uh, the youngest girl has just had surgery to remove four uh, of her front teeth because of that. Uh, we've seen um, behaviour challenges emerge in these uh, young girls. And um, uh, it, it sort of uh, affects sleep, affect eating, and uh, come out in, in, uh, in different ways. Um, we, we see that the, the girls are, are just not getting access to, you know, be able to play with other children their age, you know, age-appropriate uh, sort of play. So there's all, all these sorts of, of challenges that, uh, that they face. Only uh, just this week, the situation has gotten uh, more dire for um, this family as they've um, hit the end of their legal road, their legal bid, if you like, to uh, stay uh, in Australia. Their cases now are purely at the discretion of the minister. In January this year, uh, Peter Dutton said of, their, of, of this family, uh, they're not refugees. Their situation, he said, is of their own making. 
Now, as I've gotten to know Priya and Nardis and their, their two beautiful girls, I've seen that their situation is not of their own making, very clearly. I've seen that their situation is, is, is made by, by global forces that are way beyond their control, war, oppression, fleeing uh, for their very safety. I've seen that their situation is made by domestic uh, forces here in Australia, by, by uh, politics that in many ways have delegitimated people who have come here seeking our protection for political reasons. I've seen that uh, the kinds of assessments used on people like Priya and Nardis are in themselves uh, flawed and, and, and much weakened, in fact, over the last few years to, to effectively make it very difficult for someone to show that they, in fact, do need protection. I've seen, um, and we've seen through, through independent reports, that it's still not safe, that there's still um, you know, torture happening in, in their home of Sri Lanka. In fact, uh, the assessments say that torture, particularly for Tamil people, is routine and endemic. It flies in the face of words that would seek to delegitimate them and say that their situation is of their own making, just like that crippled man in Jesus' story, whose situation was said to be like, to be of his own making. So what does ministry look like to Priya and Nardis and their beautiful girls, Gobika and Dranika? It looks like sitting with them, being present, praying for them, but also, ministry must also look like challenging the status quo that says they are not legitimate, they're not deserving, they're not uh, worthwhile, worthy of the same kind of treatment as you and I. Ministry that challenges the status quo uh, refuses that kind of assessment and says they are legitimate. We could go through the Gospel of Mark and, uh, and work through all Jesus' ministry examples and, and draw out a lot more uh, uh, fantastic stuff there. One, one uh, story that we could go through, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief, is one where Jesus finds himself again in a synagogue on the Sabbath and there's a man with a crippled hand. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Pharisees on that occasion say to him, or, or, you know, look at him and watch to see if, what he will do. And Jesus, you know the story, he says, um, which is better, to take life or to, to give it on the Sabbath? And, of course, he heals the man. You look at a story like that and say that ministry that challenges the status quo loves despite the rules. And perhaps that, that captures 
all of what we've talked about today. Sometimes the status quo needs to be challenged. And ministry that challenges the status quo challenges the rules of the status quo and loves despite them. Perhaps I'll wind it up there. Um, but I wonder if, if we could uh, have a, a moment to reflect uh, prayerfully. Because I've given you some examples of what that looks like for us. No doubt your situation is very different uh, to ours in, in many ways. <coughs> what, does look, what does ministry that challenges the status quo look like here in Williamstown? What does it look like in your life? What does it look like to live out the kingdom? What does it look like to be found on the margins? What does it look like to legitimate the delegitimized? What does it look like to love despite the rules? Let's just take a moment. And have we got a song we can use? Yes. Let's take a moment as this song plays to reflect, to pray, to ask God to give us ways to imagine ministry that challenges the status quo. And then I might pray. Loving God, we come before you this morning. <coughs> we want to thank you that you are a God who challenges the status quo, who calls us to see a different world. calls us to imagine what this world would be like if it truly were an expression of your kingship. God, we pray that you will give us the imagination to see in, in the the wider world around us, but right here in our, in our neighbourhoods, in our homes, in our streets. What it means for your will to be done and your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. God, don't just give us the imagination. Give us the strength. Give us the courage to be those that would challenge the status quo. Those that would speak and live your love, your justice here in our world. We pray.
pray for imagination, we pray for, for courage. God, we also pray for hope. We pray for hope because we believe in a story that is about resurrection. We believe that death, that destruction, that injustice will not have the last word. That you are a God of life, of new life, of resurrection life. And so God, thank you that we don't go from here with these challenges alone, but that you are already there before us. And we thank you for the ways this week, the opportunities this week that we have to live out your kingdom and to find you there already before us. We pray in Jesus' name.